This week on the show, we have FreeBSD Foundation software development review of 2022 for you, and what we can learn from vintage computing as well. OpenBSD's KDE status report of 2022 is very interesting and promising. We also have a decade of HardBSD in review, and also have a phrase of plan 9 for this week's episode Now... BSD Now, episode 490, the years recorded on the 4th of January, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in the new year and give us a bit of better audio experience for broken microphones and such, uh, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Sorry, I had to do that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Yes, we are now in the new year. Recording all these episodes has brought us to this place. And there's more coming. So let's jump into headlines. There is 2020 still going on, at least in review time. And this is done by the FreeBSD Foundation. And they're doing this for software development. Of course, on the FreeBSD Foundation's website and in Leads like the following. From ZFS support in MakeFS to experimental 16K page support in ARM64 to LLDB and WireGuard improvements, the foundation, development staff, and contractors have had another busy year working to improve FreeBSD. From January 1st, 2022, long uh, ago, until mid-December 2022, 1,114 of the 7,575 commits to the source repository, about 15%, that is, Identify the FreeBSD Foundation as the sponsor. Raw commit data give a broad indication that the foundation is dedicated to directly improve FreeBSD. However, commit data only tell part of the story. And that's why they reviewed the foundation's role in FreeBSD development over the past year. So the members of the foundation team support development by serving in many ways. For example, two staff members serve on the FreeBSD core team, which takes on a variety of roles, including setting project policy and resolving disputes coordinate contracted development work, including internships, and we contribute to cluster administration, source repo management, security team, and continuous integration. They also played a key role in FreeBSD's Google Sum of Code program, and one foundation staff member administered the program and served as a mentor, while two other staff members also served as project mentors. The project or program was a success in that all projects passed and code was contributed to the tree. For example, DRM DebugFS support was added to the Linux KPI, and they also participated in a mentorship program through the RISC V International, oh, through RISC V International, to get Syscaller and Colonel Fuzzer working on FreeBSD in RISC V. Cool, very nice. And here in 2020, 15 security advisories and 28 errata notices were sent out to the FreeBSD community. Two foundation developers are active members of the FreeBSD security team who helped triage and address security problems and keep critical system components up to date. Also important work, for example, Mark Johnston commit, Mark Johnson, sorry, wait, anyway, uh, he committed a fix to the FreeBSD SA22 colon 11.vm because of mishandled memory sharing in the virtual memory system. And Konstantin Belusov committed a fix to uh, ELF and the 
issue, or which is an issue that could cause a kernel crash when dumping or in saving process information. While at mast made a few dozen commits to keep our copy of OpenSSH updated and secure. Then they have a section on LLDB multiprocess debugging. FreeBSD includes the LLDB debugger in the base system. LLDB describes itself as the next generation high performance debugger built as a set of reusable components, highly leveraging existing libraries in the larger LLVM project, such as the Clang expression parser and LLVM disassembler. And starting in late 2020, the foundation contracted Moritz Systems to improve LLDB and made its feature complete with GDB, the new debugger. Work done on a past contract includes replacing the old LLDB plugin model on FreeBSD with a modern plugin using a client server layout, implementing safe port functionality, and add support for debugging via serial port. That implements a follow fork and follow v fork operation and adding support for live kernel debugging. So they talk a bit more about the recent work that started in April 22. Uh, I think we covered this in a previous episode a while ago, so you can find the latest in the article here. They also have now a section about enabling snapshots on file system using journal soft updates. That is, if you hear soft updates and journal updates, you hear, you think Kirk McCusick, and that's certainly true. Uh, that's what the foundation uh, did, contracting Kirk, and that got this feature implemented, or at least uh, further towards the finish line. Uh, also, they all list ZFS supporting MakeFS, wireless improvements. A lot of people are waiting for those, I guess. OpenStack on FreeBSD, uh, FreeBSD as a tier one cloud init platform, WireGuard kernel integration, and uh, part-time work on Beehive and RISC-V. So all these are uh, done by the foundation in the last year and were made mostly or pretty much, yeah, in the general form uh, possible by your donations. And if you haven't donated yet to the foundation, why don't you do this as a first good thing in the new year? Okay, uh, next up. Okay, um, next up we have, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe this. It, uh, next up we have an article written by Clint Finley um, through the README project on GitHub uh, and they're writing, writing about what we can learn from vintage computing. Uh, and Clint writes, the Apple Newton was already old when Morgan Aldridge bought his first one in 2005. But the pre-iPhone handheld computer that Apple first folded in 1993 and then discontinued in 1998 was the best tool for his needs. I'd used Pan Pilots, which were still the go-to digital organizers at the time, and I knew they had syncing issues, he explains. Plus, most other handhelds then on the market used inexpensive RAM memory that would lose data if you lost power, requiring to restore from desktop backups. Aldridge's research led him to the Newton, which used solid-state storage, allowing it to retain data indefinitely, much like modern smartphones. Users reported leaving Newton devices in drawers and closets for years and finding they still had all their data when finally powered on. Plus, he found the Newton community was still actively developing drivers and software for the platform. So he bought a Newton message pad that he continued using well into the smartphone era. These days, Aldridge uses an iPad as a primary digital organizer, but he still participates in the community as the maintainer of the Newton Script resource website and the United Network of Newton Archives. Thanks to open source, no technology has ever become obsolete, so long as the community remains to, to, to support it. You can now sync Newtons and Pan Pilots with modern desktops, download web browsers for long discontinued operating systems, or connect vintage computers like the Apple IIe to the modern internet via Wi-Fi. 
Every year, new cartridges are released for old-school video game consoles like when Nintendo Entertainment System and Game Boy. People keep old software and online platforms alive as well. The DreamWidth team forked an old version of the early social network LiveJournal source code and built a community around it. The dial-up bulletin board system WWIV uh, is still maintained, and there are plenty of old BBSs still around. Teams are working to restore aspects of early online services like AOL and Prodigy. And you can still use Gopher, the hypertext protocol that was, for a brief period in the early 90s, bigger than the web. Developers spend countless hours on these sorts of projects, often with little, if any, hope of financial reward. So why dedicate so much effort to keeping these technologies alive or reviving them long after they were discontinued by the companies that create them? Nostalgia and the urge to escape today's often exhausting digital environments are obvious reasons, but there's more to it than that. Working with vintage technologies is fun, helps developers learn more about computer science, and preserves computing history. And in many cases, there are lessons to be learned from the old ways. Interactive history. Historic preservation is one of the most evident benefits of vintage computing. On one hand, software and digital content are among the easiest cultural artifacts to preserve because they can be copied and backed up easily. But the ability to actually run that software can be a challenge as platforms are discontinued. Early online services like AOL, Quantum Link, CopyServe, and Prodigy had millions of users at their peak and played host to software games, artwork, and of course, countless online discussions. Before the era of the smartphone and ubiquitous internet, these dial-up services provided access to many digital experiences we take for granted today, including online news, weather forecasts, sports scores, stock market quotes, multiplayer games, email, chat, and even online encyclopedias. While screenshots can help document what these services were like, there's nothing quite like actually navigating through a services menu structure and interacting with its various features to understand these services and their place in history. When any sizable online service disappears, a piece of our civilization's cultural fabric goes with it. Journalist and computer historian Ben G. Edwards wrote in a 2014 article in The Atlantic about efforts to restore the lost Prodigy content. Prodigy is of particular interest at a time when other online services were typically text-based and difficult to use. Prodigy offered a graphical user interface and helped pioneer digital advertising, great, uh, e-commerce and online travel booking. Long before Amazon, Prodigy enabled you to buy clothes, houseware, electronics, and even groceries online. Prodigy enthusiast Jim Carpenter realized all of this was poorly documented. Edward explains in his article, even screenshots of Prodigy were hard to come by. Fortunately, Carpenter discovered that Prodigy stored quite a bit of content in local cache files, and he's been able to restore many images from computer archives. More recently, a Prodigy demo disk was uploaded to the Internet Archive. The demo doesn't connect to a server, but you can explore some content from the web browser. In 2019, programmer Phil Heller came across Edward's article and decided to get involved with the Prodigy Preservation Project. He wanted to go a bit further than an offline demo and make it possible to actually use Prodigy today. Benji and Jim felt that recreating a Prodigy server was a distant and difficult call, says Heller. I saw that it sounded like a fun challenge. The result is Prodigy-compatible backend called Prodigy Reloaded. In a demo for the README project, with this article is, Heller connected to a Prodigy Reloaded server using an old copy of the Prodigy client running in DOSBox and walked through features such as news and weather services. Heller populated these features with news headlines forecasts called from, called from screenshots, but he hoped to be able to add live news, weather, and stock updates in the future. Heller says that historical preservation is just one reason he built Prodigy Reloaded. It's also a lot of fun. He says, it's like putting together a really tough puzzle where I have some edge pieces, but not the middle pieces. I have to use the shapes I have to fill in the rest of the picture. 
Fun and learning are commonly cited reasons for working on these sorts of projects. I think the biggest reason a lot of us are into retro computer is it harkens to an age where you could understand everything the computer was doing, says Cameron Kaiser, a vintage computing enthusiast who maintains FloodGap, a server and website that hosts one of the most well-known modern Gopher servers, as well as the PowerPC web browser 10.4Fox. Today's machines are so complex that you could spend the rest of your life understanding them, says Matthias Melcher, a contributor to the Newton emulator Einstein, the Newton or Game Boy are some of the last systems where you can understand the whole thing from the CPU to the microcode. Um, this is a really interesting article and it, and it keeps going, but I don't want to spoil it all for you. Um, it's well worth picking up on the README blog. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. <laughs> of course, we think it's cool, the, the BSD podcast. Yeah, that's why we included it. And I mean, we pick people's interest and they can go on and read the rest if they uh, like what they heard I, so I, far. I, I got distracted because Einstein, the Newton emulator, um, is a ROM-level emulator of the Newton. And so it, it doesn't emulate the machine. It emulates the hooks into the ROM. Uh -huh. and, and so it's not useful if you want to try and figure out if you could run Unix on a Newton, which for some reason I wanted to do. Um, but it is, it's still really cool, but it's because it's sat at this level, it doesn't actually emulate the hardware, so it's not like a drop-in replacement. There's lots of, hmm. basically, this article is full of links to hours of other interesting stuff. Um, yeah, for us belonging in history and <laughs> reminiscing the good times. In our news roundup this week, we have something New to report, who have, who have thought? Uh, OpenBSD's KDE status report for 2022 looks interesting. And that is uh, reading like following. A lot has happened since the last OpenBSD KDE status report in 2021. Let's split the report in four areas. The good, the bad, the plasma, and let them put. Okay, the good. We welcomed QT6 into OpenBSD. Our Telegram client port net uh, tdesktop depends on it and kn at is actively maintaining the client. tdesktop always quickly goes with the latest Qt6 version. So there's always some pressure for us to keep Qt6 up to date. I think this will pay off when KDE switches to Qt6. Besides, tdesktop security slash doc 4 and net slash wiretower shark also use Qt6 by now. Yeah, I have to go with the times. I have enabled devil lip uh, I notify support in most of the KDE applications and libraries. It brings support for recursive file watching. Some KDE applications are fairly hungry for file descriptors and the default limits may be insufficient. When crashes occur, it is advisable to increase your file descriptor limits for your user. And they tell you that this is done in login.conf. Uh, note that in addition to ULimits, there is a kernel level file descriptor limit which may also need to be adjusted. And this is managed through the current.max files to CTL. And many cases known to be uh, problems have happened with Net Nextcloud client, of course, depending on your file count to sync. So they have a list here of various versions that they now have. Besides the list above, many, many small and large bug fixes have been made. So that was the good part. Now the bad part. For a long time, there has been a really annoying crash in all KDE applications. For example, you will just copy-paste a file in Dolphin File Browser, save as an Ocular Universal Document Viewer. Example trace, and there's a bunch of messages going, uh, ending up in a core dump. 
Uh, so court up started at and devil QBS at build time. However, the bug hunting continues for that one. Okay. Now the plasma part. This will come as a surprise to some, but they were able to port almost all KDE plasma components to OpenBSD. Okay, you can find all my work on GitHub on the size of void slash WIP dash ports repository, branch KDE dash plasma dash WIP, directory x11 KDE plasma. I've been working on it for a very long time. At some point, I was so frustrated that we don't have UDEF and lib input. Read more uh, in a specific uh, or a separate link on the blog. Um, at Robert fixed the UDEF problem uh, for him and import libudev openbsd UDEF compatible library uh, was based on. Okay, lib input. This is the lib input part. Fake it until you make it. They started to fake lib open input uh, or lib input. A fork of uh, lib input, the original one. It is an attempt to extend lib input so that it works with wscons and kq and thus on openbsd. For now. It's a stopped libinput uh, 1.17.0 compatible API, which is okay since we only need it in conjunction with Wayland, which is con uh, currently default off. Uh, and they have a couple of uh, good so far. Uh, these are tweet extracts. So um, they see a couple of things that are broken and ask for support. Uh, so to build WIP KDE Plasma, you have to clone the repo and build the port, and they provide instructions how that so you can just follow along and once you have that you need to do a bunch of exports in your environment and then execute your plasma shell replacing uh, with a dash dash replace parameter. Currently it looks like KDE Plasma and applications lose the connection to our X11 server. Applications that start in KDE Plasma start without a window frame. And they provide logs for the issue. Anyway troubleshooting continues here as well. Uh, they hope this blog post could give you a good insight about the current KDE status and OpenBSD. Thanks, KNAD, for the English proofreading. Oh yeah, great work so far. I think this is a major effort and hopefully this sparks a couple of people to maybe think about helping out. Cool. Next up, we have uh, an update from Sean Webb, uh, a decade of hardened BSD. Sean writes, this year, hardened BSD's codebase will turn a decade old. This article provides a retrospective of, on 10 years of hard, rewarding work along with some personal reflections. My, per, my introduction to FreeBSD was back in 2000, right around the same time as the FreeBSD 4.0 release. I was a teenager back then, thirsty for knowledge. As a misfit in the real world, I found refuge in online hacker communities. I stumbled across four communities that provided the foundation for the rest of my life. A hacker, but spelled with a three, Soldier X, Pull the Plug, later renamed to Over the Wire, and Metric. Members from these communities taught me, selflessly sharing their wisdom with me. Of course, hijinks ensued, and I learned many lessons the hard way. Those lessons proved critical in my understanding of offensive security. Oh, my life to these communities. The many opportunities I've been given in life can be directly attributed to them. The beginning. FreeBSD's security posture has been focused more on the policy side. Mac slash DAC frameworks, jails, etc. Back in 2003, the only exploit mitigation FreeBSD had was SSP. Exploits against vulnerable applications could be and were written with pre-calculated addresses. The exploit payloads could be reused en masse. The gap between exploit mitigations common to the rest of the world and FreeBSD was widening, and I figured I would take a stab at implementing some. Having done a lot of ELF research the prior decade, 
coming with interesting post-exploitation techniques of revolving around ELF and P-Trace, accumulating in my libhijack project, I figured ASLR was a good starting point. I wanted to visualize how ASLR would affect tools like libhijack, which had originally used hard-code addresses to find in-process ELF headers. I had been following Ben Spengler's and PAX team's work with GRSecurity slash PAX, Knowing how robust the implementation has been over the years, I had published a blog article detailing my goals for the next year, with one goal being to implement ASLR. Unbeknownst to me, another hacker in Hungary, uh, Olivier Pinter, had already started working on a clean root implementation of PAX's ASLR implementation. He reached out to me and we started collaborating, thus Harden BSD was born. This was the first large kernel development I had ever done, so I had a lot to learn. Oliver, Olivier and I worked in separate personal repos in GitHub for a while until Olivier created the Hardened BSD repo to unify our work. Our intent was to do initial development in Hardened BSD repo with the goal of upstreaming to FreeBSD, though FreeBSD, uh, though history would take us on a different path. As we worked on our ASLR implementation, we updated the submission in FreeBSD's patch review system to solicit feedback from the project's official development team. With this being our first real foray into FreeBSD kernel development, we learned a lot through the review process. After two years of development and review, it was apparent that we differed with FreeBSD on the technical merits of our work. Our work was not to be upstreamed due to a variety of reasons, some technical, some political. I eventually became overwhelmed and burned out and opted to abruptly discontinue the attempt, the attempt at upstreaming our work. We got to a point in 2015 where we could consider our implementation as complete and moved on to other exploit mitigations. We continue to work on other PAX features, most notably uh, PAX NoExec and PAX SegVGuard. SegVGuard implementation was done by an outside contributor who had interest in the work Olivia and I were doing. One crucial decision we made early on was to provide a method of toggling exploit mitigations on both a per application and per jail basis. I have a distaste for modifying ELF objects, tabling them with exploit mitigation settings. Microsoft showed us how flawed that path has been, and I didn't want to repeat history. Olivia and I both came up with two different approaches. Olivia's was based using file system extended attributes, and mine was based on uh, abusing the Mac framework in FreeBSD. We both figured the fsext attribute approach is preferred over the Mac approach, but not all file systems support extended attributes. We integrated both the safe stack and CFI implementations in LVM across the base OS early on, which required us to switch to a complete LLVM compiler toolchain. We experimented with LibreSSL and base. That experiment showed us the world is not ready to rid itself of software monocultures. We've had contributions from quite a number of folks. Recently, Loic and Mr. Unix have done a lot to contribute towards the quality of our port tree and provide a number of various hardening bits in the base OS. In 2015, I switched employers from Cisco Talus to G2 Inc. I fell off the work there. It was the first job in which I could see a tangible human impact of InfoSec. The relationship between Harden BSD and G2 was incredibly symbiotic in nature. We used Harden BSD in various ways to support efforts in national and international security endeavors. In 2018, I was given the opportunity to mentor two interns. I feel like those two gals taught me a lot more than I taught them. If you draw a Venn diagram with two circles, one focusing on human rights and geocultural and socio-political socio issues, and the other focusing on InfoSec, we navigated the nexus between those two circles. We saw firsthand the correlation between propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, censorship, and surveillance campaigns, and the propagation of malware, and further its tangible impact on human life. I fell in love with G2 feeling married to work. That internship taught me how crucial providing unique access to security-focused technologies 
can have a direct impact on human rights and life. In 2020, HardenBSD shifted its focus solely from providing the BSD community with a clean room implementation of the publicly documented bits of GRSEC to providing a hardened ecosystem with unique points of access to help further human rights endeavors globally. My whole life, I've lived with treatment-resistant depression and bipolar. Shortly after the internship ended, my employer was acquired by the largest, the nation's the nation's largest military shipbuilding company. It seemed that nearly overnight, we shifted from a company specializing in what I like to call peaceful, offensive solutions to having to work for a large corporation that profits from murder. I felt diverse, divorced from my work. The passion that I held dear no longer existed. Along with familial and relationship issues, my life had come into turmoil. I spiraled downward from 2018 to 2020, quite literally only barely surviving. Due to his own shift in priorities, Olivier amicably resigned from the project. He wanted to focus his attention elsewhere, and I was, and still am, totally supportive of that decision. Though I will admit it was another hit to my already declining mental health, I felt like I was carrying a torch alone. I recognize now that, however, I was far from alone. I'm still healing from the trauma, the heartache, and the pain from those two years, but I'm doing so much better, especially as I utilize positive coping mechanisms in my recovery, hoping to never go through that experience again. In early 2020, I knew that as part of my healing, I needed to find new employment, and I joined Black Hawk Nest in May of that year. I'm grateful to them for trusting in me and supporting me through this journey. Through my work there, we were able to integrate the company's technology into a proprietary fork of OpenSense that we based on Hardened BSD. A number of features in Hardened BSD from 2020 and on came from work supporting that endeavor. Overall, I enjoyed working for Black Hawk Nest. I learned a lot in my two and a half years there. I especially learned that my strengths and passions lie in the grunt work, finding unique solutions to challenging technical problems. I took on a hybrid role as a senior security engineer and project manager, realizing I'm not really a good fit for the latter. Managing an open source project volunteer project like HardenBSD differs greatly than project management in the business context. I'm decent in the former, but horrid in the latter. In the end, Blackhawk Nest had to make a difficult decision in the post-pandemic world. With funding being tight, I found myself needing to find employment. Over the past 10 years, we've implemented quite a few exploit mitigations and security hardened mechanisms. We upstreamed a number of those mechanisms. I'm proud to have upstream support for jailing Beehive. HardenBSD has evolved to have a life of its own. The community has really supported the project, support for which I'm incredibly grateful. With HardenBSD's development and build infrastructure being tied closely to my employer, HardenBSD has drastically scaled back. While we're no longer able to provide regular OS builds, updates, or packages, we're looking to rebuild and re-evolve. Both me and the project have seen its struggles over the years, and the project itself shows signs of struggle. The future still remains bright. I'm here to stay. The project lives on, and even though we're temporarily scaled back, we will survive and thrive. The infrastructure will come again in due time. I look forward to the next decade of hardened BSD. I'd love to see Cherry Capsicum and Forward Edge and Back Edge CFI tightly integrated together. Um, a lot of folks have touched my life through the past decade. I had a blast working with the OpenSense project, helping them adopt uh, hardened BSD. Early on, Soldier X provided some hardware and did a lot of advocacy for the project. And while Onion is still doing uh, really cool things with Tor, they continuously inspire me. Everyone on the hardened BSD Foundation Board of Directors leads and guides me to new paths, ones I never knew existed. And I have tremendous respect for some in the FreeBSD project and community. Uh, there's a big list of names. Um, and Eva Wintershawn has selflessly contributed an amazing amount of infrastructure to the project, helping us scale to the level we did. My recent advancements in cross-DSO CFI integration were done on hardware she donated to the project. That's a really nice uh, dis decennial update from, from Sean on where HardenBSD is. Yeah, not just as a software project, but also 
him as the kind of figurehead or main person yeah. that would be associated with it today and some of his uh, personal struggles. Uh, and, and he's a person, right? It's, it's good to yeah. understand there's human beings behind this. Yeah, definitely. It, they all have their, uh, you know, shortcomings, weaknesses, but also strengths and, of course, uh, benefits. So that hopefully uh, reminds people that no, nobody's perfect, but they don't need to be to, to, to make an impact, right? Yeah. Same with us with broken audio. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> The next article that we found is In Praise of Plan 9. And it's written by Rudoalt.com in that blog. Uh, it goes, Plan 9 is an operating system designed by Bell Labs. It's the OS they wrote after Unix with the benefit of hindsight. It's the most interesting operating system that you've never heard of. And, in my opinion, the best operating system designed to date. Even if you haven't heard of Plan 9, the designers of whatever OS you do use have heard of it and have incorporated some of its ideas into your OS. Plan 9 is a research operating system and exists to answer questions about ideas in OS design. As such, the Plan 9 experience, in essence, is an exploration of the interesting idea it's put forth. Most of the ideas are small. Many of them found a foothold in the broader ecosystem. In UDF8, GoRoutines, slash proc, containers, union file systems, these have all their roots in Plan 9. But many of its ideas, even the good ones, remain unexplored outside of Plan 9. As a consequence, Plan 9 exists in the center of a fervor of research achievements which forms a unique and profoundly interesting operating system. One example I often raise to illustrate the design ideals of Plan 9 is to compare its approach to network programming with that of the Unix standard Berkeley sockets. These sockets fly in the face of Unix sensibilities and are quite alien to the system, though by now everyone has developed Stockholm Syndrome with respect to them, so they don't notice. But everything is supposed to be a file on Unix, why is it that the networking API is entirely implemented in special purpose syscalls and iOctals? On Unix, creating a TCP connection involves calling the socket syscall to create a magic file descriptor, then the connect syscall to establish a connection. Plan 9 is much more Unix in its approach. You open slash net slash tcp slash clone to reserve a connection and read the connection ID from it. Then you open slash net slash tcp slash n slash ctl and write connect 127.0.0.1 exclamation at to it, where n is the connection ID. Now you can open that tcp n data and that file is a full duplex stream. No magic syscalls and you can trivially implement it in a shell script. This composes elegantly with another idea from Plan 9, the 9P protocol. All the file I.O. on the entire system uses the 9P protocol, which defines operations like read and write. This protocol is network transparent and you can mount remote servers into your file system namespace and access their files over 9P. You can do something similar on Unix, but on Plan 9 you get much more mileage from the idea because everything is actually a file. and There is no magic syscall or ioctals again. For instance, your Ethernet interface is at net slash ether0, and everything in there is just a file. Say you want to establish a VPN, you simply mount a remote server slash net ether0 at net ether1, and now you have a VPN. That's it. The mount points are interesting as well, because they, they exist within the per-process file system namespace. Mounting file systems does not require special permissions, like on Unix, because these mounts only exist within the process tree that creates them, rather than modifying global state. The file systems can also be implemented in user space rather trivially by the 9P protocol, similar to the fuse, but uh, much more straightforward. 
many programs provide a programmable scriptable interface via a special file system such as this. User-space programs can also provide file systems compatible with those normally implemented by kernel drivers like slash net slash efl0 and provide these to processes in their namespace. For example, def uh, raw draw is an analogous to a frame buffer device. You open it to write pixels to the screen. The window manager, Rio, implements a def draw-like interface in user space, then mounts it in the file system namespace and its children. All GUI programs can thus be both be put on a frame buffer or in a window, without any awareness of which it's using. The same is also true over the network. To implement VNC-like functionality, just mount your local slash dev draw and dev kbd on a remote server. Add slash dev audio if you like. Ah, so these ideas can also be built upon to from for, or form something resembling a container runtime, predating even early concepts like BSD jails in several years, and implementing them much more effectively. Recall that everything really is just a file on Plan 9, unlike Unix. Access to the hardware is provided through normal files, and part process namespaces do not require special permissions to modify mount parts. Making containers thus trivial. Just unmount all of the hardware you don't want the sandbox program to have access to. Done. And you don't even have to be root. Want to forward a TCP port? Provide an implementation of net TCP, which is limited to whatever ports you need. Perhaps with just a hundred lines of shell scripting and mount it into the namespace. There's a couple more uh, paragraphs in this, so if we've whet your appetite for plan 9, then we let you read the end of the article on your own and explore plan 9 more find everything in our show notes next up we have vc bits little little pieces of news that have have been bitten off uh, and first up we have um announcement of libra ssl 3.7.0 uh this is on undeadly.org and is contributed by peter and m hanstein and it comes from the tlsd and ready to go even now with even more ed25519 better than ed209 department um, Peter writes, uh, new development release of Libra SSL is out and should be arriving on a mirror near you shortly. Brent Cook, B. Cookat's announcement reads, we have released Libra SSL 3.70, which will be arriving in the Libra SSL directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. This is development release of the 3.7x branch, which will eventually ship with OpenBSD 7.3. And it includes the uh, following uh, changes. Um, and it's gonna just pick at random. Um, they they cleaned up some number. Uh, they cleaned up old and unused big number code dealing with primes. Cool. Started rewriting constraints code using CBS. Remove support for HMAC private key. Rework DSA signing and verifying internals. Uh, BioRead and BioWrite now behave more closely to OpenSSL three in various corner cases. In bug fixes, they added EVP cha cha twenty uh, poly thirteen oh five to the list of all ciphers. They fixed potential leaks of the EVPP key, fixed potential leaks of object name at, avoided signed overflow in I2C ASN1 bit string, um, fixed longstanding bugs in uh, big number GFM2 poly, uh, poly 2 array, um, and BN GF, GF2 um, mod, fixed seg faults in uh, BN DES and hex. Fixed null points or dereferences in the X509 constraints URI host, reachable only in the process of the generating certificates. Um, numerous improvements and additions for ASN1, Bio, BN, and X509. Um, the BN documentation is now considered complete. 
I'm going to guess a BN doesn't stand for big number. Um, they did some testing and proactive security. As always, new test coverage is being added as bugs are fixed. And they're rewriting many old tests and cleaning them up. They added ED25519 support, both as a primitive and via OpenSSL's EVP interface. X25519 support is added via EVP. Uh, OpenSSL 1.1 raw public and private key API available with support for EVP PKED25519. Um, HMAC um, and Poly1305 is not currently supported via the interface. The LibreSSL project continues improvement of the code base to reflect modern safe programming practices. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks to all contributors who helped make this release possible. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly, yeah. There's also news from OpenSense. They have 22.7.10 version released. And they list in this uh, small reliability update uh, additional Radius user creation support uh, included as well as a couple of patch notes. Uh, they added a group class sync user creation for radius authentication. And they show and search ACL endpoints in privilege selector. They also replaced a number of log error calls with log message equivalents. They also improved the SSH lockout behavior. In the firewall department, they uh, have the page performance improvements and better address parsing in search. They also reused the host ID on the filter reload events. Uh, a couple of uh, changes in Unbound, the plugins got uh, updated and a couple of fixes, and some newer ports are now available. Stay safe and happy holidays, belatedly, but um, yeah, it's there. Get the release if you haven't uh, done so already. All right, next up we have the BSD CAN 2023 call for papers. Surely we've covered this already. Yeah, we should reiterate it because people should submit. Um... Ah, okay. I mean, this one was sent on the 29th of December, so it's... Uh... It's a new one compared <laughs> to the last one. New um, enough. I read the whole thing. Uh, BSD CAN 2023 will be held on May 19th to 20th, Friday to Saturday, May in Ottawa at the University of Ottawa. It will be presented by two days of tutorials. Also, do not miss out on the GOAT buff on Tuesday the 16th of May. More details to follow later. We are now accepting proposals for talks. The talk should be designed with a very strong technical content bias. Proposals of business development or marketing nature are not appropriate. If you are doing something interesting with a BSD operating system, please submit a proposal. Whether you're developing a very complex system using BSD as a foundation or helping others have a story to tell about how BSD played a role, we want to hear about your experience. People using BSD as a platform for research are also encouraged to submit a proposal. Possible topics include how we manage a giant installation with respect to handling spam and or sysadmin and or networking, Cool new stuff in BSD. Tell us about your project with Runge BSD. Other topics. See next paragraph. The archive section on the BSDCAM website contains all of the past talks. You can use them as examples. Both users and developers are encouraged to share their experiences. The schedule is uh, the 1st of December uh, proposal acceptance begins. The 19th of January, which is 15 days away as we record and might be like tomorrow when you listen, um, a pro proposal acceptance ends. 19th of February, confirmation of accepted proposals. Um, see also bsdcan.org slash 2023 Instructions for submitting a proposal to BSDCAN2023 are available from uh, the submissions page. Uh, cool, you should submit, yeah. submit early, submit often. BSDCAN, the major you, one. Oh, the if you heard this and you want to submit, you probably have very little time. So you should submit before you hear this. Yeah, it's yeah, like the yesterday. only way to win. <laughs> Turn into the time machine. Um, 
there is one tiny bit that we have, uh, which is labeled once upon a time ago. I was sitting alone in the UCLA ARPANET site, and that is on Mastodon, LaurenWeinstein.org. And that goes, greetings, once upon a long time, I was sitting alone in the UCLA ARPANET site, number one computer room, late one night, when the high Santa Ana winds outside started disrupting power. Hit after hit, uh, very dangerous for the microcomputers, describes and other equipment in that room, since we didn't have uninterruptible power supplies back then. I made some calls, and it was decided I should shut everything in the room down. Everything. I phoned the ARPANET NOC Network Operations Center at BBN and explained the situation since I was about to shut down IMP1, which is essentially a refrigerator-sized router on ARPANET, which sat in a corner of the room. And doing this would cause disruptions if done in an unplanned manner. The IMP was always running. I had never seen it powered down. I worked my way around the room, powering down terminals, and disks, and printers, and the power supplies on the 11-45 ARPANET host, UCLA ATS and the 1170 host number 129 and 1 plus 128 on IMP1. UCLA security. Back then my email address were lauren at UCLA-ATS and lauren at UCLA-security. No domains yet. The usual roar of the many machines fans and motors gradually got quieter and quieter until only the IMP was left. I pulled down the power switch. Now there was dead silence except the hum of the lights situation I'd never experienced in that room before. Very odd feeling. Suddenly I heard a click. The IMP was powering back up by itself. Damn. I pulled down the switch again. Quiet for a, a time. Then click and it came back up again. Before I started thinking about screwing around with its power cabling or turning off breakers that could have unexpected effects, I called the knock again to ask them if they had any ideas. Oh yeah, we should have told you. There's a little switch that controls auto restart. Surprise! So I found and flipped that little toggle switch, powered down the IMP again, and this time it stayed down. I had turned off the ARPANET, at least at UCLA. Ha! <laughs> Very cool. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use TARSNAP. TARSNAP is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TARSNAP is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. TARSNAP also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And uh, we should have now feedback and questions at this time, but, well, at this point in the show or in the year, that's quite early. People are still coming back from holidays, and they haven't probably had time to send something to feedback at bsdnow.tv. But now that they've heard it, they should. So in a future episode, we expect a bit more feedback there, and that is something 
as a good, you know, good New Year's resolution submit uh, BSD now. What do you want feedback about, Benedict? Uh, anything. Um, I got some feedback already about our Christmas and New Year's episodes, by the way, which was well received, I hear. Cool. Um, but anything maybe about our audio issues? No. Um, no. We're getting to the bottom of this. We'll uh, fix all these for your Let's hearing pleasure. Benedict's made a bunch of jokes, but my audio issue is not an audio issue. If I plug my microphone in, I can't press buttons in Skype. That's not an audio issue. It's it's software. It's that, always that, software. That's some, it's something else. It's like it's really <laughs> this one's really difficult. I don't I don't understand. I don't want to reboot a computer. Yeah, it's, they just appear out of nowhere, right? Last time it worked so well, and now we're have sitting in front of broken hardware and have to do with what we have as alternative. I just, just don't understand. It's, yeah. it's not even debuggable. It would just work tomorrow. Of course, I'm Could be, yeah. podcast Face tomorrow, the I'm not insane. <laughs> oh, okay. It, the moon has to be, Okay. You're right. So we need to, um, we need a PLL with the moon and then we'll be fine. Something. I mean, how hard could it be? Phase lock the microphone to the moon. Okay. I'm going to put that in the show planning document. <laughs> yeah. Big to do. <laughs> Only record, um, when we're waxing gibbous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, uh, we leave you with that. Hopefully you had a good start in 2023 and uh, we hope that you uh, will be well, returning to this episode or to another episode that we record in the future or that we will see you at a future conference or other kind of events this year. So that would be nice. Otherwise, check out our um, well, Twitter where we have uh, post always the latest episode or use feedback at bsnow.tv to get email out into our inboxes i was i was just using moon words because I, I don't know a lot about astronomy but we are actually waxing gibbous right now oh are we i, I, I guessed right yeah yeah here we are that's what carrots that's are. saying something yeah it's cool we will uh explore this further anyway we leave you now uh for this and enjoy your week until next week